Welcome to Myth versus Craft. Welcome to episode four of Myth versus Craft, where I set out to interview interesting people who excel at what they do. My guest today is guitar icon David Grissom. A guitarist guitar player, he's also an accomplished songwriter, sought-after sideman, and successful solo artist. David has toured and recorded with a long list of prominent artists, including Joe Ely, John Mellencamp, Storyville, The Allman Brothers Band, The Dixie Chicks, Chris Isaac, Ringo Starr, Buddy Guy, and many more. You can learn more about David, check out his calendar, and find his music at davidgrissom.com. If you're ever in Austin, do yourself a favor and go see David and his band at the Saxon Pub any Tuesday night. Here we go. David, welcome to the podcast. It's a real pleasure to have you. Nice to be here. Thank you. I read that you started out playing drums mm -hmm. and later switched to guitar, which, by the way, I read that uh, Joe Satriani um, also was a, a, a drummer first. Yeah, really? Yeah. What made you switch to the guitar? Uh, Revolver, the Beatles record. I heard Revolver, and uh, basically, I specifically got to get you into my life. There's a guitar lick that happens about a minute 30 into the song. Um, I don't know who's playing it. George Harrison, who, know, who knows? They all play guitar, but it's the it's the guitar line that mimics the horn line. Da -da 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 down, 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 down. And when I heard that, it was like that was magic. I heard magic and. When I I was in a restaurant with my wife the other day, and the song came on, and I said, "You got to listen to this lick. You got to listen to this lick." <laughs> and I, it it has this little bend in it with two strings, you know, like it, the top note is not bent, the bottom note is bent, and then let down, and it's just so that one lick you I hear me, you know, the way I play so much of the style that I've you know tried to develop from that one lick, and and, and the whole record really, and then. Paperback Writer was recorded on the same sessions in the tone of that guitar. It just grabbed me. How long did it take you to figure out or to learn that lick? I didn't learn how to play it correctly until about two years ago. <laughs> and the weird thing about it is, is I thought I knew how to play it until I really listened to it. And it's, the lick goes up. It's like, um, you know, you know the, on the first and third string. And on the way up, it has the major seventh in it, and on the way down, it has the dominant seventh in it. And I never think of doing that. And so I was like, after all these years, I'm like, what am I? That's it. What? I, how did I miss that all these years? I've been reading um, a handful of uh, biographies of, of musicians and listening to other podcasts, and uh, and it's incredible how many people can trace back their start. Uh, basically, the trigger, the 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 genesis of of everything related to music to the Beatles. Uh, in many cases, um, depending on their age, um, their appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show, and in other cases, just listening to it. Well, I didn't. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know that I ever. I mean, I think I was a little young for the Ed Sullivan Show, but um, yeah, it was Revolver. And you know, throughout my um, formative years, whatever you want to call it, high school, there were numerous um, things like that where maybe it was one song on a record, maybe it was one solo on a record, where the rest of the album didn't really float my boat that much, but it was this one solo. There was something about it that, to this day, I hear it, and it influenced me so deeply. And it was across all styles, you know, and that was the thing about growing up in a small town where there wasn't a big music scene. And in an era where it was kind of like you had to really search to find music, it wasn't like everything was on YouTube immediately. So you, didn't, you couldn't get on Spotify and listen to anything and everything immediately. Um, so whenever I would find one of those gems that was, you know, I, call, I mean, these, you know, like moments of magic. And that's, that's really what, to me, I strive, you know, when I can, if I ever can write a lick or, um, or hear a new song, like out of the box, that moment of magic, that's what has has been like this light that I've followed. You mentioned growing up in a small town, I believe that was Louisville, Kentucky. Mm -hmm. I read that you were exposed to a lot of jazz and bluegrass. Yeah. And that one of your guitar teachers early on turned you on to uh, Wes Montgomery. Yeah. I think that was at 15. How deeply did you get into jazz? I got in deep enough to... Um, Really, I think 
give me the invaluable uh, extra depth of harmony. And um, in the process of working with that teacher, he taught me, you know, I, I learned to read a little bit. I don't read well, but I, I read a little bit. Um, I'd never played a major seventh chord until, I mean, I didn't even know what that was. And so uh, the harmony and theory, a little bit of reading, the ability to read a chart, you know, follow, just to navigate a chart, to understand modes, to understand um, the degrees of the major scale and how that worked with chords, all those things kind of um, were in, have been invaluable to me. Um, I learned pretty quickly that to be a great jazz player is a full-time commitment. And there were so many other styles of music that were pulling at me that I'm I in no way, shape, or form claim to be a jazz player. I mean, I know enough to get me in, get my, get in trouble, you know, to get into a situation where I'm gonna get I'm gonna get busted if I if I <laughs> stick around too long. But I just went out and did um, three weeks with Robin Ford playing in his band. Wow! And there were um, you know there were some a few moments where I really had like uh, you know. Uh, I know how to do this. I haven't done it in a long time. And some soloing over some changes that were really like, you know, altered scales and you know, chords that went by really, really fast. It wasn't just uh, diatonic or modal stuff at all some of the some of the times. And it was fun to jump back into that, be challenged and sort of not fall on my face. And that all goes back to that spending the time with that teacher. But, you know, Wes, whether I can play, I can't begin to approach the level of sophistication of what he was doing, but w- what a beacon and what what um, a source of inspiration to this day. I mean, and if nothing else, even if harmonically I don't, I can't do it. His feel and his spirit definitely transmits to me. I mean, I I definitely feel like the, the way he swings and his rhythmic sense, phrasing. Um, that's one thing, you know, and it. it you know, going back to playing drums, I do approach things very rhythmically. Um, and I, you can take this, the, the simplest harmony the, with a few notes. And if you, if you're inventive with it rhythmically, you can create something unique in that way too. So phrasing, uh, you know, Wes, Jocko, Michael Brecker, the you know, saxophone player, his phrasing really influenced me a lot. And so Again, not having the I don't I had I haven't put in the time um, um, to really be developed as uh, a, on a harm, deep harmonic level, but I've been greatly influenced in other ways. Mm-hmm. You touch on something um, very important, but I think that many many um, guitar players in particular don't pay attention to, which is um, uh, the importance of rhythm. Not not just in terms of rhythm playing, but in terms of impro- improvisation and, and playing lead. And um, I've uh, two different guitar players I've I've seen or I've heard mentioned that are uh, Paul Gilbert. Um, I remember at some point watching a video, an instructional video of his, where he mentioned that when, whenever he acquired a new, uh, had a first lesson with a new student, one of the first things he would ask him to do was to improvise, but just but exclusively rhythmically. And don't play notes, don't worry about the, the chord changes, the scales, don't worry about anything else, just rhythmically improvise or show me what, what you can do. And that would immediately let him know more. That was the first gauge that he would use to determine where the student was. Yeah. And the other one is uh, John Frusciante, the ex uh, uh, guitar player of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yeah. And in his case, he he saw it more so in terms of 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 playing um, out of rhythm and in terms of of just accelerating and decelerating, making it much more organic. Yeah. And not just falling right on the on the dot. But I think I think yeah, and I and I totally dig that, and I think you have to. But I think to do that effectively, you have to sort of be able to play in time and right. in the pocket before you can legitimately play around with the time. It's like you know, in sessions, great session players. We you know everything we do now, ninety five percent of records that are made are cut with a click track. Great drummers and bass players, rhythm sections can can fudge a little bit, can maybe knock the tempo, get on the front side of the beat on the chorus to give some sort of energy lift, and then fall back maybe on the back side a little bit on the verse. But, man, you really 
that is a fine art. And it's, you know, a, a lot of times guys will say they're doing that when they make, when they're rushing or dragging. And it's like, <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> Going back to uh, when you were first starting, what can you tell me about your first bands, your first shows when you really started playing with other people? Um, well, the first time I started playing with the, the, the first time I actually played in a band situation was with some guys I went to high school with. And it was, you know, doing Almond Brothers and BB King stuff. Um, the first time I actually started playing gigs was with a, like an R&B band where I happened to be the only white guy in the band. And we did like Earth, Wind & Fire, Crusaders, um, George Benson, all that kind of stuff. And we would play, uh, we played some clubs in Louisville. And that was, uh, those were the first paying, truly paying gigs I did. And then when I, I went to college for a year and got into a band uh, in Bloomington, Indiana, I went to IU for a year, um, happened to get in a band with a bunch of guys who were older than me, one of whom was Kenny Aronoff, a drummer. Stream winner? Stream winner. And um, we kind of toured the Midwest playing the rocks, the rock clubs in the Midwest, but we were playing... Uh, everything from like Steely Dan to Weather Report. And I would convince them that we needed to throw an Almond Brothers tune in there uh, from time to time and write in our own t tunes as well. But um, that was a great experience. That was a really great experience. You, you mentioned that you attended for one year. Um, was your major music all along? I went I went for music and and realized that after... I could, then I quit for two years and went on the road. And after that, I realized that I was going to learn a lot more about music playing gigs than I was going to class. Perhaps regret is too strong a word, but do you regret that first year or do you feel like that no. at the very least got no. in touch with I don't regret people? anything. I mean, I think everything everything along the way has been necessary to get me to where I am now. Um, and I never would have met Kenny and, you know, I ended up playing with uh, Mellencamp and, um, you know, being around those guys, they were all graduates of IU School of Music and I was just, a, you know, 18 years old and I mean they were I was just trying to keep up and they were they were heavy players and they took me in and I don't regret that at all it was uh, and really at the time I didn't know what I wanted to do exactly or how I was going to go about doing it so that gave me the time to get the experience be around some great players you know develop some great relationships and then it all of a sudden I found that I started listening to all this different, this new kind of music. And it was Joe Ely, Lou Ann Barton, the fabulous Thunderbirds. And I realized it's all happening in this place called Austin, Texas. And since I was in high school and got, you know, I was a big ZZ Top fan. And since I got, the day I got Trace Ombres and opened up the jacket and saw that big plate of Mexican food sitting there on the table in that full, you know, when albums were really big. And, um, I fantasized about, I want to, I want to live where you can eat that food. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so every, the stars kind of aligned at that point. And, um, you know, it was just like, I woke up one day and I was ready to move. And I had a friend who lived here in Austin. Um, she let me come down and, uh, stay, stay with her to check the place out. I was here for about five nights. I went down to the Continental Club, heard the Cobras. I went to Hudson, heard Angela Straley. Flew back home, packed up my Honda Civic, and turned right back around and got down here. And uh, I've been here ever since. This was 83? 83. Can you pinpoint the moment at which you decided that you wanted to take a shot at making a career in music? I don't think I ever didn't feel that way. I mean, at, at 12, you're not really thinking about, well, what am I going to do for a living? But about the time I can remember being 15 or 16, thinking... This is everything. This is it. Did you ever have a backup plan or you never even considered doing anything else? Well, I took some business courses just in case. Um, and they've actually served me really well, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I can read a contract. I've never had a manager. Um, I've always negotiated my own deals. Um, God willing, you know, I mean, I knew that this is what I wanted to do. And if I would cross the bridge when I came to it, if it if it didn't work out. But somehow, I guess, you know, the naivety of youth, I was convinced that it was absolutely going to work out. And I did have, I mean, I had some experiences that were sort of affirming for me. I, uh, 
the great the great jazz guitar player named Jimmy Rainey, who was from Louisville, he he played with Charlie Parker in the fifties. I got to go to his house and t- and take a lesson with him, and basically we just played, and we played like you know some jazz standards. We just opened up a book and read the char- read the chords and played in together, and it was an out of body experience in a way because it was like in his presence, I all of a sudden was playing, like really playing, making the changes and really playing. And, you know, we had a conversation at the end of the hour and he said, well, like, what are you going to do? You know, I mean, what what are your plans? And I said, well, you know, I'd like, I'd like to do this for a living. I hope I can make it. And he just, he looked at me and he's just really matter of factly said, oh, you're going to make, you're going to make it. There's no doubt you're going to make it. And it was like, um, it wasn't a feeling, it was a humble, I felt humbled by that. Not, it didn't make me cocky, but it was, it was uh, a, a, a gift that he gave me, uh, the way he said it and allowing me to come into his house and to, you know, play with me for an hour. It was, it was special. And he was right. He turned out to be right. Yeah. You moved to Austin in 83. How soon after that did you um, start playing in Joe Ely's band? I started with Joe in 85. So in 83, uh, when I got here, I immediately went over to the Highland Mall here and got a job working at Musicland Record Store. And um, my friend, who I came to visit earlier, let me sleep on her floor for three weeks. And uh, back then, there were a lot more situations where you could just go out and sit in with people. And really, people were pretty cool about letting you come up there. I mean, I got like a, had to sort of, you know, talk to him, meet him, let him know who I was. But um, in doing that, I really met a ton of people. Um, but the the big thing, like I've been here two weeks and I'd called up the writer from the paper here, the music writer, which is like something you really don't do. And um I told him who I was and where I was from, and I was, does he know anybody that's looking for a guitar player? And he was real brusque with me. And a guy named Ed Ward, who, he's a great guy, but he, knowing what I know now, I never would have made that phone call. Um, And he he said, well, I'm not a matchmaker. I mean, I don't know if you're any good or not, but if if you are any good, there's a girl named Lucinda Williams who's looking for a guitar player. You want her phone number? I said, sure, sure, sure. So I called her up out of the blue and went over and played with her. And like a week later, I was going to the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival um, with her to play down there. And shortly, I mean, actually, like the almost like the day we left, um, they wanted to add another guitar player. And they added a guy named Derek O'Brien, who is to this day one of my favorite blues players. And he was like in the Antones house band and everything. And so we became really close friends and really admired each other's playing. I, th- I think it's safe to say he was playing with Luann Barton at the time. He got me in Luann's band. So then all of a sudden now like, I'm playing with Lucinda and in Luann. And so by virtue of being in Luann's band, I can go into Antones anytime I want for free, which meant every single night. <laughs> and I got, you know, it was... Uh, it was, it was really a lucky situation. Did that come naturally to you? Are you a pretty outgoing guy and calling up and meeting people and networking and sitting in? Or did you, was that something you just realized you had to do when you forced yourself to do it? I forced myself to do it. Um, I just wanted to make something happen. And I felt I was, you know, I kind of felt like I was good enough to, you know, I was ready to do it. You know, I had a lot of energy and I think there was a lot of energy in my playing. But at the same time, I was, I had enough experience and enough guidance from the people who I'd played with before about how to really accompany a vocalist, how not to overplay, how to adapt to situations where if I'm the only guitar player, if there's two guitar players, um, I had enough of a start on that, that I was, I was, I was far enough along to where I could get into these situations. And once I got there, I just soaked up every last drop of, knowledge I could get for these guys that were more experienced. And, um, you know, at Antone's, I would just like study, religiously study um, 
you know, Denny Freeman, Derek, um, David Murray, he played down there all the time at the time. You know, they all played differently, but I watched how they played rhythm as much as anything. And um, I would, you know, and then I would go to other places and it was just guitar land here then, man. It was like, there was like, you know, I mean, Eric Johnson, Stevie would come through all that, you know, he was, whenever he was in town, he was down hanging at Antone's. And and then Clifford was bringing in Otis Rush, Albert Collins, Jimmy Rogers, you know, week, just, there was always somebody hanging there. You know, Hubert Sumlin, you know, and I got to meet all these guys and, and play with some of them. And I got a real, you know, it was an education. You know, I tried to study hard. Hearing you tell the story now, it it seems like it happened rather quickly for you. Did it feel like it at the time, or at any point were you discouraged? No, I was never discouraged, and it did happen quickly. And um, well, it happened at a at a, st- at a steady pace. Um, every day was an exciting. Every day I woke up, I was excited, and I can't r- really uh, that period of time. I don't ever really remember being bummed out about anything because there was, I had a lot of gigs and if I didn't have a gig, I could go hear the music I loved. And then shortly after Lou Ann's band, I got a call from Joe Ely in 85 and uh, a week later, I mean, they, you know, back before it was, you could really expedite a passport. I'd never been out of the country. They expedited my passport. And a week later I was on a plane to Australia and it was like, man, I thought going to Louisiana, New Orleans was a big deal. Here I am going to Australia. And um, how do you put it in words? I don't know. You know, I'm 25 years old at that point, and I'm uh, 24, 23, and I'm, I'm as far away from home as you can get playing music with this guy that I, that who influenced me to move to Austin. And, and in the process of getting to know him and learn his songs – and see how he encouraged me, becomes my mentor. And at the same time, we were running buddies. It wasn't like I work for, Joe was never like, you work for me, you'll do this. It was like, I want you to step up and do your thing. And, you know, and, and uh, I think he was so unique. He's such a unique musician and a unique artist in that with Joe, we the songs we played and the way the sets went, we played everything from the quietest ballads you can imagine to the most balls to the wall rocked out stuff. I mean, the Clash took him on tour. You know, the Clash they, he influenced this, uh, Joe Strummer and those guys. I mean, his energy level, and at the same time, the integrity in his songwriting and the songs that he picked, and the integrity and in the choices he made. And the choices he did, you know, the things that he turned down that maybe would have been a path to more commercial success. But I see, I saw then a little bit, and I see way more now how true he was to his vision and how that wisdom has really paid off for him. And he has, he's, he's more, he's playing more gigs now than he was back then. And I'm sure, you know, as far as I can tell, extremely fulfilled in what he's doing and continue to evolve. What are some of the key lessons you learned from your experience with Joe? I would say the first thing that comes to mind is in the five years I played with Joe full time, I never once, ever once saw him not give 110%. And there was a night we played in Germany where there might have been 10 people in the audience. The PA was falling apart. It's cold, rainy. We've been in Europe for a month. You're tired. The average person is going to walk out on that stage with a heavy, you know, like, oh, shoot, here we go, man. Got to slog through this thing. Just get me back to the hotel. He came out and kicked ass harder than I've ever seen him in my entire, you know, in the whole time I'm working with him. So that right there was if you're not going to show up, don't even put your guitar on. That was that really was an eye opener for me. Um, just his commitment to it, the way he treated all of us as brothers, really influenced me a lot about the dynamics of being in a band are unbelievably complicated, and it was the most uh, relaxed, fun experience I've ever had being in a band. 
um, the use of dynamics and the encouragement he gave me to find my own voice on the guitar. Uh, I mean, th those are the main things that I that I would I would point to. How did you stint on Joey Lee's band come to an end? Well, it ended when I got the offer to go to Mellencamp's band, which is something that actually I had to really think about because I was really devoted to Joe and I loved the band. But at the same time, I felt like this, you know, Mellencamp, that Kenny was in the band. I knew him. It was really guitar oriented and it was a good fit. And obviously, I mean, you know, I get a chance to make records that, a million people are going to hear and I get to play in arenas and find out what that's all about. And, uh, so that's how that happened. How did Joe take, uh, take the news? I think I took it harder than he did. <laughs> I mean, he was totally cool. He's like, yeah, you got to do it. You know, I mean, you've got to do it. Before I ask you what it was, uh, what the experience was like playing in John Mellencamp's band, I should preface this by saying that I listened to an interview with Kenny Aronoff. Um, and, and heard him describe what the experience was like. And um, I gather that it was pretty different from the experience with Joey Lee. It was not even close. Everything I just told you at the exact opposite. What did Kenny say? Basically that, that John is, is a very, very talented very complex and and in some ways complicated individual that at one point told him that he flat out doesn't like musicians yet he's a I mean he is who he is and he's made a career working with other musicians and that he could be incredibly demanding and and Kenny said that he had in a sense been prepared for that just by the very nature of, of how hard he worked and how hard he prepared and his experience at uh, music school in, in, yeah. in Indiana yeah. and the incredibly demanding professors he had exactly. there. So he felt he had the chops and the background to do it, but just talked about how, how challenging it was. Yeah. And, and I gathered that it was very much the opposite of what you described in Joey Lee's mm -hmm. band. It was a total opposite. Kenny's probably more diplomatic about it than I would be. Um, but I've always tried to take the high road on, in this situation, even though John didn't does not take the high road uh, w with regard to the way I left the band. He came through Austin and, and said basically a bunch of stuff that wasn't true about me in the paper here after I declined to uh, talk about the circumstances of me leaving the band, which were really not very flattering uh, to him. But I've always taken the high road, and, and, and that's about all I'm going to say to that extent. But I will say that, yes, it was very – he is uh, – he doesn't like musicians. He uh, he is very smart. He's the strong – the thing I learned most from John musically was when we worked in the studio, in which, you know, as a producer, he's he's, he's, he's almost brilliant about the way he's able to take a three-chord song and – these three chord folk songs and turn and direct them and make them become something much bigger than that. Um, and I, you know, the, my, my time with him was a, was a double edged sword. Um, to be honest with you, man, there was stuff about it that was actually emotionally traumatic that I had to endure working with him. But at the same time, I learned stuff that was, uh, that I use to this day and that I, you know, it was invaluable. So while in the process of going through hell, there was a lot to be learned and I took advantage of it and, and kept my eyes and ears open the entire time and asked engineers questions. How, why are you using that mic? How are you getting this sound? And, uh, you know, the, his process of working in the studio was what really, um, was invaluable. Um, and listen, you know, when when things were good, when things were going well, like the like the song came quickly, and uh, we were all a team, and it was going great, or if the show was great, or if you know, when he basically if he was in a good mood, it was it was fun, it was really really fun. But when when it wasn't going well, it was pretty miserable. Were most of the lessons that you took or, uh, or the learnings that you took from that experience um, centered on the studio and the recording process and production? Well, there. I mean, I also learned, yeah, that was, I would say those are the most, 
valuable ones, but I learned a lot about, you know, first of all, you know, playing arenas is different than playing clubs. And so there's a whole way that, you know, you sort of have to communicate on a grander, a bigger scale. But but I, I learned way more about playing live from Joe. I mean, I'd gotten that foundation and it really wasn't that big of a, an adjustment to go do the John thing. But um, again, yeah, I think that the, his method of working in the studio was was really I mean that's his strong suit. Tell me about Storyville. Storyville, um we had Chris Layton and Tommy Shannon rhythm section and um another great guitar player, David Holt. Uh so two guitars, bass and drums, and then you know Malford Milligan singing, who was who's just a one of a kind powerhouse singer. And uh, when I left John's band in in ninety three um, I kind of hit this crossroads of which there have been many, many crossroads as anybody that does this long enough. It's, it's a constant uh, coming to uh, the T in the road and which way do you turn? And I, I left John's band and got the offer to do Rod Stewart. And at the same time, Chris Layton called me and said, hey, we're putting this band together. This is what we're thinking. This is who it is. And went out and met all everybody and heard Malford sing. And I'm like, wow. And so the Rod Stewart thing was like about 35% more money a week than I was making with John, which was like astronomically more than I'd ever made in my life. Um, but in my gut, and I think maybe this is something that I picked up from Joe Ely. Um, and my gut told me that the that Storyville was the way to go, that, the, that, that I was going to, that the more musical path, the more the path, the more growth was hanging out with these guys. And I don't, you know, there was no guarantee where it was going to go, but I felt like it had enormous potential. And I, I mean, I really felt like Storyville was going to be big. I really thought we were going to do it. I realized that my wife, the only time in my whole career that I've been married that my wife told me I was, she thought I was making a mistake was when I turned down Rod Stewart and did Storyville. But I knew that if I kind of sensed that if I did Rod Stewart, I'd gone from I'd be going from John to to Rod, flying in the private jets all over the place. That you know I'm going to give up. I'm going to give up five years, another five years, probably. And I just didn't want to really do this country club rock band thing. And I say that, and in, in, I don't mean that condescendingly, but, you know, you, it's so alluring because you're staying in these beautiful hotels and you're flying in a private jet and everything. But really, man, I'm, it's, it, 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 at least John, I got to play on the records and come up with my own parts and everything. But with Rod, man, you're going to, it's just, it's a cover band. Basically, you're recreating the records. And there's a time in my life where, you know, the money really is needed and appreciated and the experience, you know, you can, you can sort of, there are so many things to be learned, even though you are playing basically cover stuff, but I felt like I had done that and the meat and potatoes was really with Storyville. And I just, that was the choice I made at that point. How did the songwriting process work in Storyville? Everybody wrote, um, some of the songs, people would write individually. Some of the songs, uh, two of us would get together and write. Some of the songs came about with all of us in the room and we shared the writing credit on it. So it was, you know, more than one way to skin that cat. I read somewhere, and I don't know exactly when this would have happened, that you co-wrote hundreds of songs through a publishing deal. Did you enjoy that? Uh, did you enjoy the process of, of collaborating with someone else and just churning out songs? I enjoyed it for a while, and I and I don't regret one minute of it because I learned. I mean, I I got to I got to co-write with guys that are in, and women, men and women, both ex- way more experienced writers than myself. And my publisher was able to, you know, get me these co-writes, and it was, you know, I, I, it became apparent to me how much of it was just sitting down and working. You know, it's not like, I mean, even Bob Dylan has to sit down every day and work at it. It's a craft. And every person I co-wrote with had a little different way of working. And so I was. it was like going to school and at the same time getting paid for it. But what I found was after about eight years of it, uh, I wrote some songs. You know, this was mainly in Nashville. And I got some songs cut, you know, like Trisha Yearwood, Leanne Womack, 
Montgomery Gentry. And then I had some blue stuff cut. You know, John Mayall and Shannon Kerfman cut one of my songs, each cut one of my songs. But after about eight years of it, what I realized, and I think it sort of coincided with me making my first record, was that I had this huge catalog of songs. And I'd, you know, like go into my computer in one night and I'd just start listening to them song after song after song after song. And there really weren't any in there that I would put on my record. And I that a light bulb kind of went off, and I said, maybe it's time that I write songs for, that I want to put on my record. And it was coincidentally at the same time, there was kind of a regime change at the publisher I was working for. They weren't really listening to the stuff that I was turning in uh, that much, it didn't seem like. So I elected to sort of just get out of the publishing deal. And as soon as I did that, I did I started writing songs that I wanted to record. And um, not to say that some of the songs that I wrote, there were lots of those songs that I wrote back then I'm really proud of, but you know, I think I became, I found my voice more when I quit trying to write for other people. I read a quote from you in which you said, I listened to some of my stuff from 20 years ago and I appreciate the testosterone, but there are some cringe moments too. How would you describe your music as having evolved from 20 years ago to what you do now? I think undeniably, um, when you're 23 and you're, uh, you get lucky enough to play with somebody like Joe Ely and you're driving around the country in a van playing six nights a week and you're not getting a lot of sleep and every night there's a, you're, you're hanging after the gig and, uh, it, it influences the way it would influence the way I play it. I mean, it was, there was certainly, you know, this reckless abandon and also I think subtly, not consciously doing it or thinking about it, but my I was developing my style. So this incredible enthusiasm for, you know, in Joe's band, like, you know, combining these pedal steel licks through, I got my first vintage Marshall and I got my PR, first PRS and this combination, all this stuff started to really click. And I was just, I would literally feel like I was levitating some nights when I was playing. Um, but at the same time, when I listen to some of it now, it's like, it's over the top and it's, you know, I just, I, I feel like now I'm able to, at least I can still play with the, the same kind of energy, but maybe do it in a more um, compelling way, I guess. Um, and I have more to draw on, more influences and more experience to draw on. I mean, there are parts that I came up with on records back in that I'm like going I'm super proud of. I mean, there, there's, I really am very, very proud of all the stuff I did with Joe and the records that I played on back then. And, but I do feel like now when I play with my band on Tuesday nights that I levitate higher than I did back then on most of those nights. I mean, it's, it's a religious experience and I just feel like I'm more seasoned. I read an interview with Tom Petty in which he said something to the effect of songwriting. He, he didn't really understand how it <laughs> happened and that songs just came to him. That's an oversimplification, but it can still be frustrating for an aspiring songwriter to hear that. How do you write? Well, first of all, I want to, I want to tell you that one of the greatest quotes I've ever heard about songwriting is another quote from Tom Petty. He, and he said, it was on Storytellers, that VH1 thing where you know you're supposed to talk about all the songs. And he said, he introduced a song and he goes, I don't really, I can't really say what this song is about, but I damn sure know what was going on when I wrote it. <laughs> and to me, that was, that explained how to, that put into words like, cause, cause to me, he is the master of the simple lyric that resonates on a lot of different levels. And I love that, man. You know, when it doesn't, you don't have to be Bob Dylan um, or Leonard Cohen to, to write something that is sim that resonates deeply with people, and the trick being, uh, if you're gonna, you can write simply, but to not to avoid cliche. And I kind of feel like you sort of have to have a certain depth to be able to do that. In other words, it's like, like Pat Metheny said once, when Keith Jarrett plays A minor to F, it really means something. And I'm, that's what I'm. That's what I'm talking about. You know, I, I mean, Tom has studied all these songwriters, all these people he grew up with and idolized. He learned all those songs. He knows about songs. 
I love his Sirius XM channel. Uh, that's you know I have it on my car half the time because, just to hear him talk about songs and the way they affected him as he was growing up. But how do I write? Uh, you know, it's a thousand different ways. Um, most of the time, it'll start with a musical idea, and I would say that I have twenty musical ideas for every lyric idea, and depending on where I am or uh, you know, if I'm sitting down with a guitar, I'll just play it over and over and over again. And I, you know, if I get a melody, cool. And my my best friend now is my iPhone, the voice memos, and I capture it all. You know, because I you you lose all this stuff if you don't capture it the minute you come up with it. And um, if I'm lucky, you know, I'll get a read on what does this feel like, what is this, what is this groove and this melody, what does it feel like, and what I mean by that is like what emotion does that bring up with me? And, you know, maybe a phrase or a word or just a vibe will come to mind and I might sketch out a few lyrics. And in a perfect world, uh, a title. And once I sort of have the groove and an idea about what it feels like and what it might be about, I can finish it. There's just so many different ways to do it. Sometimes I'll start with a title or I'll start with an idea or I'll hear a turn of, you know, somebody will say something and it'll fire something in my memory. Um, you know, a lot of times reading books, a lot of times watching movies. Like when I go to a movie, I have a very, very hard time telling you what the movie was about a week later because I'm visually, I'm so, there's so many things that happen in a movie theater for me visually or what somebody will say or this just will will make music start firing in my brain to the point where people I, when people like talk about you know like they saw uh a, a certain movie and yeah remember when that's that scene like that i'm like i have no recollection <laughs> of it whatsoever so it's um i think we all work differently. Um, and if I'm co-writing, it's a whole different experience altogether too. And it depends on who I'm writing with on, as to how we'll approach it. A lot of times I write with people that really just write lyrics. And that's, to me, that's like going on vacation because <laughs> I've got music for, for, for years and I'm, and I'm, and I'm really good at coming up with, I mean, I can give you a whole set of chords and a melody that I'm happy with on spur of the moment. And uh, like a good lyric writer. I wrote a lot of songs with the guy, you know, seven or eight songs, not a lot of songs, but with Chris Stapleton when he first came to Nashville. And now, I mean, he's one of the most talented people I've ever been around in my entire life. And, he, and, and there were songs that we wrote together where it was, you know, lyrically 50-50. There were a couple of songs where I just played and hummed a melody and he took a piece of paper and a pencil and 15 minutes later we had a finished song. And incidentally... He has the number one record in the country this week. It, oh, wow. It's it's uh, after he did the CMAs the other night. He was, I mean, he's so undeniably talented. All it took, you know, just to, like people to hear the guy, and it was, you know, he sold like two hundred thousand copies of his record last week. And um, of all the people I've ever co-written with, I have to say he may be the stoutest, most talented. Uh, Easiest to write, easiest to write with, and and just uh, you know, almost there were times when I was almost in awe of his ability to take something I was feeling and just boom, here's the title, here's what it's about, and then we just we're off to the races. I mean, we rarely spent more than two hours on writing a song. When you say that musical ideas come to you and that you have many of them at any given point in time, is it usually a riff, a a chord progression, a melody, or any of the above? All of the above. And really what I find to be true, I find that um, when I first sit down with the guitar, that's when I try to, it's a paradox. I try to empty my brain, my mind, my, you know, have an empty canvas, and at the same time, really be mindful at that, in that first, those first five minutes, because that's where the fresh ideas are going to probably happen, or they have a good, good likelihood of happening when you first pick up the instrument. Having said that, I also find that 45 minutes down the road, all of a sudden you stumble onto something cool too. Um, and I always, always record anything that I feel is is cool that I can go back and listen to. And I do feel, in, you know, I have to justify this to my wife every time 
I trade or get another guitar. <laughs> Every guitar has different songs in it. And I've had guitars that I've written really great songs on that I kind of felt like I wrote, you know, I sort of gotten all the songs out of it. And I'll, and I'll go trade, I'll go down to Austin Vintage Guitars or whatever and try to trade for something different. Um, but literally, I mean, you line up five acoustic guitars and each one of them has a little bit different story in it, especially like if they've been around the block and they have some miles on them. And I also have made a concerted effort lately to write more playing an electric guitar because normally at the house I'm writing with an acoustic guitar, but it, you know, it's like, it may seem obvious to the average, to, to the average person, but duh, for me, the guitar, you know, the guitar player, when I've got an electric guitar and an amp, I play differently. So, um, and I really, and I use, um, I use the computer sometimes too. I'll lay down an idea, you know, I'll just set like a cool drum loop and I'll lay the idea down and over and over and over, just play it and, and listen to it and try to come up with a melody and lyric for it. And then I'll maybe come up with a different section and then I'll put that in the computer and all of a sudden I'm building this song that way. So as much as, uh, I bemoan the loss of analog tape and of, of all of us playing in the room, cutting the whole record at once. Um, the other side of the coin is that I have this new way of to work on my own and write songs. Let's touch on uh, guitars for a moment. You're, you're well known for playing PRS guitars. Uh, I also read that you one of your first guitars was a 1960 Strat, originally Dakota red and painted over with Fiesta red. Do you still have it? I still have it. I still have it. Uh, when I moved to Austin, it was the only guitar I owned, and it's it was fa- it was painted Fiesta red at the factory. It's you know it's not a refin, and uh, I sweated through the Fiesta red and saw this darker red underneath, and um, I'm thinking, oh man, did I somehow get a refinished guitar? Because I bought it in Memphis in 1980. Paid 400 bucks for it. And I moved down here. It was my only guitar. And there was a guy, Ray Hennig's Heart of Texas Music over on Lamar, a guy named Danny Thorpe. And he, along with Charlie Wirtz, they're both no longer with us anymore, started the first vintage guitar show. And he knew more about vintage guitars than anybody around here. And I became friends with him immediately. And he said, he told me, he said, I used to have one exactly like it. He said, "There's no." He said, "This is what Fender did." He knew before, like any, you know, he knew because he knew the guys at Fender, and he had done the research. He t- and he, so he explained to me what had happened. And then, you know, about six months later, I'm over at this little rehearsal complex, and Stevie's in there rehearsing, and he had a Fiesta Red one that was originally sunburst underneath. You could see the 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 dark brown, blacky, you know, the black edge uh, coming through. So. Uh, yeah, that, that guitar, I mean, I still have it. I tried to sell it a couple of times, and my wife would not let me sell the guitar. Are you glad now? That yeah, you- I'm thrilled. I mean, you know, it's, it's part of and, and she, it was sentimental for her because, that you know, when she knew me, I mean, I had a Honda Civic in that guitar. And it reminded reminds her of, you know, when we first met. And uh, God bless her. I mean... Do you play it often, or is it stashed away? I don't play it often because um, you know I've got that. I've got and I've I've got another old Strat that's a, you know Maple Neck a '54, which oh, wow. is really a different, you know, different sounding Strat. I I fantasy, you know, I keep thinking I'm going to play them more. I record with them when I need that sound. But the thing for me about a Strat is I play differently on a Strat. A Strat. And even a Les Paul too, you know these guitars that are icon iconic guitars. There's so much that I kind of feel like the book has been written on them. You know, with a Strat, you know, I want to. I'm going to go to that Wind Cries Mary thing immediately, or I'm going to want. You know, I'm going to get into Jeff Beck world. Um, with a Les Paul, I'm going to be you know channeling Dwayne. I mean, try to tra- trying to channel Dwayne Allman and Billy get early Billy Gibbons. Um, Somehow or other, about 1985, when I moved, you know, I saw everybody, you know, almost every guitar player in Austin was playing a Strat. Something inside said, you need to get a different guitar. And then the, I saw this turquoise PRS. It was the first year they were out. I thought, and, and it just spoke to me. And, you know, I've got great vintage guitars. And when I do sessions, you know, you got to have a great Tele, a great Strat, a great Gretsch, a great 335. Uh, Les Paul, I have a Les Paul Jr. I've got a Les Paul. I mean, you have to have all these things. 
if you're going to make records on any kind of level, it's certainly when I was working in Nashville, producers, they, if nothing else, they want to know you've got them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've always been attracted to playing something different. And I think truly feel like by doing that and with the, with the PRS and, and you know, initially vintage marshals, it helped me define my, my sound and come up with a sound that I think people tell me they recognize. Would you say that you have a single favorite acoustic or a single favorite electric, or is there no way to pick one? It's like picking a favorite child. Uh, it's really difficult. I mean, how do you pick between a 335 and a telly? So I have a 59 335 that is my favorite humbucking vintage guitar. And I have a 52 telly that's my favorite single coil vintage guitar. I have... Um, a 42, I just got a 42 Martin D18. It has, the headstock has been broken off. The fingerboard has been replaced. It's had about 20 repaired body cracks. It weighs about three pounds. And it is total magic. And I paid like nothing for it. I mean, it's a, pre, a pre-war D18 can be $50,000 if it's all original. Mm-hmm. This was peanuts mm-hmm. because of everything that had happened to it. But... It is one thing I learned from Brian Sutton, who's like to me the the greatest young younger bluegrass guitar player there is. Was I noticed he was always playing these guitars that had been put back together and were beat up, and um, so I had the chance to go up to Carter Vintage Guitars in Nashville, and they had like I've always wanted a D18 since I was in high school. This Norman Blake record, Whiskey Before Breakfast, and he was playing like a a pre-war D18, and the tone he got, I always wanted. I, you know, dreamt of having one that could sound like that. And I walked into Carter's and they had six pre-war D18s. And I got to play them all in this one that had been, you know, totally run over and put back together. It sounded better than any of them. So at the moment, there's that one that, you know. But then in new guitars, I mean, to me, Collings Acoustics, um, I've got a varnish finish Collings Acoustic that's just, it is unbelievable um and then i've got a couple of prs that you know my signature model that do everything and they really i mean when we designed that guitar the idea was to take the best of both worlds you know get a a new guitar that was consistent uh from guitar to guitar that i could travel all around the world with it didn't have to worry about any maintenance on it whatsoever but yet felt and sounded like a vintage instrument. So there's a couple of those that I, I like, I put right up there and I choose as often and more often really when I'm going on the road or playing live. Um, there's some other builders out there that are making instruments that are that dare to be different. And I, you know, I mean, it's a lot of, you know, I, I understand the fascination with wanting to have uh these iconic instruments because our heroes played them. But I, I mean, for me at this point and at some point, at some point and continuing through to this day, I also value the guys that are, you know, the Leo Fenders of our era that are, that are building a better mousetrap sometimes, not always. Having said that, no new guitar sounds like the 42 D18. No new guitar sounds like my 52 Tele, and no new guitar sounds like the 59 335. The PAFs that are in that guitar are indescribable. And I've played, I've owned several guitars with PAFs and played 30, 40, 50 of them, and they all sound completely different. So, um, so that's a really long-winded answer to what's the, my favorite guitar. I, you touch on something interesting to me, though, which is the fact that these vintage instruments, select vintage instruments, in a sense, are the benchmark now for, for the epitome and just the pinnacle of, of, of some of the sounds that we all love. And part of me wonders if it's simply because they were the first or if they truly, if they truly were that much better, objectively better back then, or they simply... If they simply happen to be the first and thus by default, they became the de facto standards that we now aspire to, to match. Well, I think the first thing you have to think about is that when the tele- solid body electric guitar came out, it was blasphemous to most guitar players. So 
the the guys that had the courage to pick these things up are the same. It's the same idea that I'm talking about now. It's like, you know, I've had people talk and say that I'm, you know, until I get start playing a real guitar, I'm never going to have a chance of being taken seriously. I mean, you know, this is like there is a real prejudice, and especially amongst sort of traditional retro-minded people that you can't take a PRS and run it through a, a new amp and make it sound as good as, as vintage stuff. And, you know, that's just ignorance, I think, because, first of all, there are a lot of PRSs, PRSs that's really true. They're, they're designed for something totally different, but not I designed the one that I play to do something completely different than most of the other instruments that they have. But I do what I think it's a combination of the guys having the courage to pick these things up and play them. But um, you're dealing with the wood was consistently better back then. It was it was aged more. It was from an older older growth trees. I think that gives the, the instruments the potential to be better instruments acoustically. Um, the primitive ways they made pickups worked in their favor. You know the 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 amount the small amount or the lack of wax potting gives it can either make it scream and be unusable or it adds a vocal quality to it that you can't get in a new pickup mm-hmm. so in in the the important thing that I like to point out to people is i mean I've been lucky enough to own and play hundreds of vintage guitars, and I would say one out of ten is truly magic. the other nine you might as well get a reissue. That's my. That's just my experience. You know, other people think would would disagree with that, but that has been my experience. Let's talk a little about performing. I was going to ask you a question that you already answered. You mentioned that you levitate more now than you did um, twenty years ago or thirty years ago. I've read interviews with certain musicians that to whom it almost appears like performing is a necessary evil, and I've I've spoken with others that to whom it's a core part of their musical identity and one of the core reasons why they do it. And and it sounds like you're very much in, in the latter camp, that it's it's just something that, that fulfills you and something that you aspire to do and look forward to doing every, is it every Tuesday night at the Saxon Yeah, I mean, now? Too, I mean, that hour and a half on, on Tuesday nights is my church. And um, I can be feeling terrible. I can, you know, I mean, I can actually absolutely be exhausted and down in the dumps. And 30 seconds into the first song, I'm, I feel uplifted and reminded about everything that's wonderful about the world. And, uh, but I do think there's a difference, you know, there's, you can make a distinction between performing and going on the road. Mm-hmm. It's two, you know, there's two aspects to it. There's the traveling part of it and there's the playing part of it. Um, some people love both parts of it. Some people like the performing part, but don't like the traveling part because let's, you know, you're getting, you're not, you're, you're working 24 hours a day, essentially when you're, you know, in, in a van or a bus with a, eight other people, stinky guys and uh you know on certain tours waking up in a concrete arena smelling breathing diesel fumes i mean you're get you know you're you're working 24 hours but you get paid for an hour and a half that's the way i look at it you know but i it depends what i'm playing i went to europe earlier this year and i did 26 shows in 31 days in seven countries it was exhausting but man i got to play my stuff and People came to the shows and responded, and it was really uplifting. And I'm just at a point now, you know, I've been a sideman from the bulk of my career. Um, and you know what? Let me tell you what. It's way easier being showing up and just playing guitar for somebody. Mm-hmm. Let them do all the talk and let them worry about the set list. Let everybody look to them. Let the review, you know. I mean, it's so much easier just showing up and playing guitar. But... It's way more rewarding to be able to work with the great players that I get to work with and have that experience and connect on a level that's way deeper and, and than, than it is when you're going out and playing a show, quote, in quotes, a show. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I we get up there every Tuesday night. And I have a list of about 50 songs and... Before we walk up there, ah, let's let's do this one first, and from then on, it's just whatever I feel like calling. And I know that the guys are so good that each time we play these songs, they're going to be different, and that's what keeps your blood flowing. 
At this stage in your career, are you very self-critical after a show? Or do you have you learned that there's some nights that are better than others? Learn to accept that some nights are better than others. Yeah, I, I, I've learned to accept that some nights are better than others. And I also have learned that when I think it, what sometimes when I think it's not a great night, that uh, people in the audience relate that like it better. And I, and I think it's this weird, uns, this weird subliminal thing that if I'm sort of struggling a little bit, like if I'm, the sound's not great or my chops don't feel like they're totally up to, to par for whatever reason. And I'm, I, you know, I, I don't, I refuse to give in to that. And, and I'm going to give 110% no matter what. Um, that, that there's a thing that people that are listening or that are in the crowd, they relate to that, you know, because we all struggle, man. That's what li- life is a struggle, you know? I mean, it really, it's not, uh, it's not easy most of the time. And so I've learned to not carry that away from the gig with me. You know, if say you know, I don't, uh, in in the last four years, I've had two or three, maybe maybe a total of five nights where I felt like I didn't, or honestly, was disappointed with the way I played, and so that's a pretty good batting average. And you know, the other thing is now when I go to the gig, when I play, for for various reasons, just evolving, hopefully, as a human being, my focus is a large part of the focus that I I bring try to bring with me is not so much how can I how can I sound great or how can I make people think I'm really good as opposed to how can I somehow transmit something that makes people feel good mm-hmm. and it's you know sort of getting out of that self-centeredness of making just putting it's you know it's not about me so much it's way more about the music and involving the people that are in the audience in the room in the in the whole experience and that's where the joy comes and i think uh, that has changed my perspective my perspective has changed and has changed um it's sort of up the percentage of good gigs for me you mentioned a moment ago that you work with uh, great musicians when putting together a band, what do you look for in a bass player? What do you look for in a drummer? Well, that they understand the music, that they're compatible musically. Uh, that that's the that's the main thing. And I think secondly, personality. Are they team players? Are they reliable? How much experience do they have? Can I count on you know when things go south? When I break a guitar string? When a bass drum pedal breaks? Are we all cool with all that? We know how to handle it. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, it's you know, and, and and it's interesting too because I feel like there's no hard and fast rule to that. You know, do they understand the music? Because we have gone through a, you know a couple of different changes in our in our band. But there's everybody brings a diverse thing to it, and that really appeals to me. Like I don't, because that's just where I'm coming from. It's stylistically covers so many different areas, and that you know one guy's more rock oriented, one guy's more blues oriented, and one and a couple of you know a couple of guys I play with are really heavy duty jazz cats. But they also know how to let they know a bunch of Led Zeppelin songs, you know. And I hope, and I feel like that I'm have embraced those differences with, with the guys that I work with. And you have a much better chance, I think, of if you play to people's strengths and not try to mold it and guide it too much, of coming up with something much more unique. If you had to make a laundry list of why you think you've had the success you've had in your career, what attributes or what qualities or strokes of luck, what do you think has enabled you to have the success you've had? Luck. <laughs> luck, uh, luck, and more luck, and and by that, um, not just blind luck, but you know, um, the guitar teachers that I had early on, the different influences that they uh, turned me on to, um, meeting, you know, get, meeting Kenny Aronoff when I was eighteen, and riding on his coattails a little bit, and have him mentor me a bit. Um, the breaks that I got when I got into Austin, um, invaluable, but somewhere along the line, I think, and I think it had, it had to do with, you know, 
one of the things I was brought up with, um, sort of, you know, I, I heard a lot of talk about integrity growing up and um, sort of looking at the big, long picture. And that com combined with um, my experience with Joe and seeing, not probably being able to put it into words at the time, but having the sense that I was in the presence of someone who was a true artist, Joe Ely, really influenced my whole decision-making process from that point on. And when I came to these forks in the road I talked about earlier, I always chose the one that I felt was going to let me learn the most and didn't necessarily go for the most money. And as a result, I think if you added the, you know, what I turned down and what I chose, I probably ended up, the money probably all even out at the end, but something much more important is I became a much uh, better musician and I've had a much more uh, fulfilling experience through music because of that. Do you think the most feasible way for a musician nowadays to earn a living is simply by being diverse, doing session work, uh, giving lessons, producing, mixing, being a sideman, doing some solo work? What do you think are the keys to for someone trying to make it now? I think now you have to do all that stuff. I mean, I really do. I don't think it's not like it used to be where you could just be as, I mean, maybe you could just be a session player if you moved to Nashville, but the money is not like it used to be. The competition is bigger. There are fewer records being made. I think you have to do it all. I mean, you have to play the gigs. You have to be, you have to know how to do sessions. You have to write songs. You have to teach um, in some way, shape or form. You don't have to do all these things, but you, you have to be open to doing them all because I mean, Let's face it, man, living in Austin, playing gigs around town is, if you got any, I don't have kids, but if you have kids, forget about it. I mean, you're not going to make a living, any kind of living unless your wife has a good job uh, or your husband, if you're a woman. I mean, it's, it requires a lot of imagination, but the, the, having said all that is, you know, the, the way with a computer and a cheap interface, now you can make your own record. And if you're good and if you're committed to it, you can make money selling records. And actually, I think we're not that far off as much as people, you know, bemoan streaming and Spotify and all that. Um, that's the future. I mean, you know, I, every time I make a CD, I think it's the last one I'm actually going to press up. I'm probably going to do at least one more. But um, at the end of the day, you either do this because you have to or you don't do it at all. And it, it, this will weed out the week. The, the 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 climate we're in right now will weed out the week for sure because it it you either have to this is what you do because you have to do it or you'll you're gonna move on to something else in a hurry. David, I really appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.